Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, a syndicated columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Damon Linker of The Week, Bill Galston of Brookings and The Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez could not be here this week, but we are delighted to welcome a special guest, <coughs> Josh Kraushaar of the National Journal. So thank you. Great to be here. Did I pronounce your name correctly? You, you did. You did. Excellent. That's... I'm so glad. All right. Now, in the past few days, President Trump stomped out of a NATO meeting after a video surfaced of foreign leaders mocking him. The House Judiciary Committee heard from four law professors at its first impeachment hearing. The president announced new tariffs on Argentina, France, and Brazil, and two candidates exited from the Democratic presidential race. Um, one of them, hardly anyone knew, was in the race. That was Joe Sestak, and the other widely hailed as a likely winner when she first announced that would be Kamala Harris. So, Damon, let's start with you. You wrote a piece analyzing Harris's race. We um, don't have time to get into all of it, but could you just give us a precy of your point about what happened to her, what she did wrong? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had a high hopes for Kamala when she first uh, announced and when we knew she was about to announce. Um, but I, I think she gave off a vibe for a lot of people that led them to think that she may have been constructed or grown in a DNC lab. Uh, there was something a little too perfectly democratic, uh, circa 2019, about her and the position she staked out. And by that, I mean that she perfectly reflected the kind of tensions and contradictions within the Democratic electorate in a way that sort of led her to trip over over her own feet a little too much. So, for instance, she kind of came out of the gate uh, as a prosecutor who has a really impressive track record as the, the DA of uh, San Francisco and then the Attorney General of California before running for Barbara Boxer's uh, former seat uh, in the Senate. But very quickly, she got tripped up by the fact that there are factions within the Democratic Party who are skeptical of prosecutors and what they call the kind of carceral or, or um, in, in uh, mass incarceration state. And so she would then back away and seem hesitant about wanting to portray herself as a prosecutor, which was a great setup to uh, kind of go after Trump on law and order grounds. And then she also ran uh, very quickly to embrace Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, uh, which then led to a stampede, uh, which is talked about in a very interesting Politico piece today, how all of these uh, Democrats ran to embrace the Medicare for All bill, which Bernie loves to say, I wrote that damn bill. But a lot of those Democrats are now saying, damn, why did I why did I <laughs> run to say that I like this? Because now it's a kind of albatross around their necks. And then, of course, uh, Harris had to back away from that, but then sort of didn't want to back away from it and then did back away again. And she, in, in debates and then statements following debates, she repeatedly was in this position of trying to embrace a kind of trendy position among certain Democratic activists and then having to backtrack from it. All of it adding up to a problem that Democrats not that uh, infrequently have, which is a kind of uh, inauthenticity problem where she seemed a little phony, a little airbrushed, a little too perfect in a way that turned out to be pretty imperfect for the race. So that that's kind of my take on her fate. So, Josh, you um, you had a piece uh, right around Thanksgiving called, uh, what was it, The Biggest Political Turkeys of 2019? <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you, you included Kamala. So tell us, uh, tell us if you have anything to add. Yeah, to she made the David list said. and then she drops out of the race. So I, I can't <laughs> claim to, to take credit. But, but the, the logic behind her dropping out was, was pretty obvious. She just didn't have enough support, even among the, the constituencies within the Democratic Party, African-American voters 
voters, suburban voters, um, younger voters that that were part of the Obama coalition and seemed like a logical fit uh, to, to to woo over in her campaign. And you know, I agree with Damon that that she she was really in an identity crisis. She didn't know whether to go left or go to the middle. Um, but I, I I think you know my diagnosis is that she chose to go left uh, on when whenever she was undecided. And and he you know, Damon points out her her rush to to sign on to the Bernie Sanders Medicare for All bill. She was the first Democratic senator to, to sign on to the legislation, as, as that Politico piece reported. Uh, that's not the space she needed to be in. Uh, she she said herself at the last debate that she was a candidate well positioned to put together the Obama coalition. And, and we've heard from the former president in recent weeks, and he would not have advised her to, to go towards the Bernie Sanders faction if she wanted to win the Democratic nomination. And, you know, on issues ranging from immigration to racial justice to even her own record as a prosecutor in California, she almost always moved to the left, close, much closer towards the, the Sanders-Warren faction of the party, rather than the space that Pete Buttigieg, who's been doing quite well uh, in Iowa and, and New Hampshire. He, he realized that early on, you, the, the way to win was appealing to a broader array of moderate and center-left voters within the party that, you know, Warren Sanders and a whole host of other candidates were already crowding that that left faction. And, and, and she didn't take the opportunity when she could have to appeal to a broader array of voters. And I think that led to her downfall. She just didn't have the political instincts necessary uh, to win in a very, very crowded Democratic field. So let me just um, add one thing about, uh, which is to underline, I guess, both of your points. But um, that sort of stellar moment that she had in the debate where she took on Joe Biden and and mentioned, I was the little girl who was bust and so forth. Um, this was her star turn. This was going to be her breakout moment. And she completely sabotaged herself by within hours of that performance. I mean, by the way, she marketed T-shirts the next morning, you know, with the, her picture as a little girl. And, yeah. Oh, it was more um, than that. Um, the picture of her as a little girl was up just a few minutes. A few minutes. After okay. she said it in the debate. Oh, wow. And okay. Went, this yeah. was pre-packaged yeah, 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 to yeah, a fair yeah. Oh, well. yeah. Okay. So just a few minutes. All right. Anyway, but then the, the, like within, within a few hours after that, she acknowledged that, well, yeah, she wasn't actually for busing uh, in 2019 or 2020. Uh, she, so her position then, her substantive position was identical to the one that she was roasting Joe Biden for having held 30 years years ago. And um, it was an, it was absurd. It was made it clear that this was purely performative on her part and had no substance. And um, so I think right from that very moment, you people got a, a, a very bad feeling about her sincerity. Well, uh, two things became apparent very quickly. First of all, she had no grasp of the national issues that were going to define the debate first within the party and then between the party's nominee and and President Trump. And secondly, this goes all the way back to Roger Roger Mudd and Ted Kennedy, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Uh, she did not have or certainly Wait, could not- Wait, you better explain that for our younger listeners. Right. Well, uh, Ted Kennedy uh, threw his hat into the ring against an incumbent Democratic president, Jimmy Carter. And I think his first official act was to sit for an interview with Roger Mudd, who was then the the anchorman of CBS. CBS thank you. Uh, and uh, and Mudd asked him very directly, bluntly, and artlessly, "Well, why are you running? Why do you want to be president?" And you know, after a few minutes of embarrassed, halting, fumbling around, it became very clear that Ted Kennedy had never asked himself that question, that his staff had never forced him to confront it. And he wanted to be president, apparently, because he wanted to be president and thought that it was somehow in his DNA and in his destiny, which wasn't much of an answer. Uh, and be, knowing why you're running is not a sufficient condition for winning, but it is a necessary condition. And it became apparent very quickly that she hadn't checked the most elementary boxes. And, and so there was a kind of rough justice to what happened to her campaign. Mm. I, I would just add, though, that um, in the right circumstances, just being just having the view that you would like to be president can be enough. Um, I remember the, uh, in um, 19. 
1932 when Franklin Roosevelt was running for the first time. Um, I think he had a um, he he met with somebody whose whose identity I don't remember right the second, but the but this person said, well, he's perfectly nice man, but uh, he has absolutely no qualifications, except that he would very much like to be president of the United States. That was Walter Lippmann. It was Walter Lippmann. Thank you. Okay. So, so you know, but but in that year, with Hoovervilles around the country and the Great Depression roaring, uh, it was enough. So it yeah. can be. But Oliver uh, Wendell Holmes got him right. Yes. First class temperament, second, second class. Second in, class mind, my first rate yeah. temperament. Yeah, first rate temperament. Right. Um so, all right, but um, so and Kamala just just to to just put it in, uh, to underline this one more time, um, she she did this just shows that you know we always should keep be modest about what we think is going to happen because if you looked at her when she first announced, she had twenty thousand people at her announcement, great energy, and she did seem like the ideal candidate, a female, African-American. Uh, she was attorney general of the largest state in the country and then a senator. And I mean, she just did look like she had been, as, as Damon says, as she, she had been developed in a lab to win the Democratic nomination. But it isn't that, it yeah. isn't that simple. I was going to say, I still think she would be a front runner to be the running mate for the eventual nominee, especially right. if it is Joe Biden, because there is going to be intense pressure for a white male to balance the Democratic ticket at a time when the party is as diverse as it's ever been, both on gender lines and racial lines. And look, the skills of a running mate are a lot different than the skills of a candidate. Right. Uh, you don't need to have a message. You just need to yeah. take the ticket's message and attack the president. And she's she that was the one thing she was good at. She was good at yeah. making the case against Trump. Uh, I, I think she would be uh, she would be on my short list for any any, no, any Biden, nominee. Biden Harris has been the ticket from the beginning. And the question <laughs> was, would the party be able to get there? Hmm. Uh, um, there is one other thing about her demise that I find particularly remarkable. Her announced re reason for leaving the race was that she had run out of money. This is a stunning development for a veteran politician from the state of California, which is, you know, ground zero for Democratic money, mm. right? If you can't raise enough money to keep a presidential candidate going from the state of California, this is you know this this is not Indiana. This is California. Mm -hmm. well, although yeah, that's true. Although I would add that it's also a function of probably the quite large and potentially quite bloated campaign she was running with a lot of people on payroll. You can she left she left the race with ten million cash in, on hand, which she will now roll into her Senate campaign war chest. And if she were running a leaner operation, that wouldn't have even become an issue, although I agree that obviously there's tons of money sloshing around out there in Silicon Valley and in Hollywood that she should have been able to tap into. But again, it's a product of a certain kind of campaign that she was running that uh, was, was uh, not very well thought out from the beginning, in my view. And if you, for folks who follow California politics, she didn't necessarily have the same track record that other California politicians like Jerry Brown or or statewide figures have been able to to bring to the table. She won against another Democrat in the 2016 general election because of the the quirky yeah. uh, top two system in California. So she never even had to face a Republican. And when she did face a Republican in her successful bid for Attorney General, she barely won in 2010 in California. And both of those campaigns featured a lot of off the record griping that she was spending too much money she wasn't focused on the right message so though you know looking at your track record politically can often be predictive when it looks when, when you're looking at a presidential campaign well, I think we've tromped a lot on the grave <laughs> <laughs> we wish her all the best well we just made her vice president yeah, okay, yeah, yeah enough, so. right? not a all bad right. consolation no, prize exactly, exactly. especially especially if the putative nominee is going to be a one-term president right Right. Absolutely. I yeah, mean, you, if she things work out that way, the race for the 2024 Democratic <laughs> nomination begins the day after Joe Biden wins the election mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> or is over. <laughs> in the sense that she could waltz right in. I don't know. We'll see. Well, uh, all right. I know. I know. Let's not go we there. Can't, we can't. Right, right, right. OK. So. Um, all right. Now, Josh, you you have you've had so many really good pieces this week um, that uh, I'd love to talk about. But let's just talk about since we've devoted a lot of time to the Democrats. Let's talk a little bit about the Republican Party. You had this interesting piece about 
the um, situation in Georgia where the governor, Brian Kemp, defied President Trump. And instead of appointing Doug Collins, who people may be familiar with from the Judiciary Committee hearing um, on impeachment, he's the ranking member. Um, uh, he was Trump, uh, Trump's pick to replace the uh, retiring Johnny Isaacson. Johnny Isaacson is not well. He's leaving at the end of this year. And so uh, the governor gets to appoint uh, someone and he appointed Kelly, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Leffler or, yeah, Leffler. Um, so tell us, this is, this is kind of a rare moment for a Republican to defy the president. And by the way, I think it was Matt Gates who threatened him on Twitter and said, how dare you substitute your judgment for that of Trump? Uh, you'll be sorry. We're, we're going to primary you and so on and so forth. All right. So tell us what this is all about. Yeah, we're seeing this phenomenon of Republicans who are trying to appeal to the establishment wing of the party, but realize they have to kind of kowtow to Trump at the same time. And it's it's, a, it's sort of a thankless task. And what Kemp has to do is, is pick a nominee that can win a Senate seat, not just in, in 2020 when, when Georgia looks like a, a competitive state at the presidential level, but also to run alongside of him in 2022 when he's up for re-election. And he sees the demographic writing on the wall in a state like Georgia, where the suburbs of Atlanta are growing, getting more diverse, becoming more democratic. He understands. He's, he's a guy, by the way, Kemp was single-handedly, uh, you know, Trump single-handedly endorsed him. He came out of obscurity to, to win the primary in, in 2018, he owes his whole political career in, in many ways to the president, but realized that to, to, for his own long-term survival, for the survival of the Republican Party in a battleground state like Georgia, you have to appeal to suburban women in Atlanta, and you have to find someone who isn't just playing to the base, as Doug Collins has done throughout his career as a congressman, but someone who is, and Kelly Loeffler is a businesswoman. Uh, she owns a WNBA team. Uh, she's someone who's politically untested, but biographically fits the profile of the future of the Republican Party. So even though Republicans are kowtowing to Trump at every level from, from the presidential on down, uh, Republicans do know that, that this is not the future, that, 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 that this, this dynamic can't last forever for them to survive politically. So we're beginning to see the first seeds of what Republicans are thinking about um, in the future, how to position themselves in a post-Trump universe. And I think Nikki Haley is kind of planting the same flag where she says she's loyal to Trump, but has taken different positions and has criticized every once in a while uh, controversial positions that the president takes. And Kemp, who's about as Trumpy as any any Republican, at least in his campaign, has decided that Trump is not the future. The Trump brand is not the future. And that the party has to be more diverse, has to be more welcoming to, to non-white voters and women as well to win, even in a Republican-leaning state like Georgia. That's interesting. Is there anybody besides Nikki Haley and Brian Kemp who you think are sending out these little signals that they might see the future of the Republican Party being less Trumpy? Well, I think Marco Rubio, and he sort of hedges his bets uh, every so often, but he, he certainly, if he wants, I mean, he, he's kind of in that same camp and has tried to to hedge a little bit, even though he's largely been loyal to, to the president. You know, I think Elise Stefanik really got a lot of attention um, during the impeachment hearings. And I think even though she drew a lot of criticism for her sort of slavish loyalty to the to the president, I, I think that's the equation even the more pragmatic Republicans realize they have to take. Not disagreeing with Trump per se, but disagreeing perhaps with his policies, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's social policy, whether it's outreach to, to women and minorities. They're trying to appease Trump. And, and, and the governor, by the way, Governor Kemp met with Trump with his uh, nominee at the White House and word leaked out that the president wasn't particularly happy, uh, didn't go well. But I think that the calculation was appease Trump, say the nice things about the president. And, and Leffler said how great President Trump was at her at her uh, announcement. Uh, so she's not exactly criticizing Trump, but she's offering a different image, a different uh, look for the Republican Party that can eventually break from perhaps some of the more uh, polarizing and controversial policies of this White House. Um. So not for a long time after he took office, uh, foreign leaders uh, figured that the best way to handle Trump was the flattery route. Um, you, you had all kinds of examples of this. Um, Abe in Japan was, you know, basically, you know, uh, kowtowing to Trump. And uh, where was it in Poland that they said they were going to build a 
Trump Air Fort, Fort, Fort Trump, Trump. <laughs> <laughs> which I guess is where Bibi got his idea for <laughs> naming a settlement in the Golan. Exactly. Oh, God. I can't make this up. No, you really can't. Okay, so that was that was the rule for a while, but now it looks like they're getting. The foreign leaders are deciding there really isn't much to be gained from the flattery. It doesn't necessarily get you what you want, and so. Um, uh, Emmanuel Macron went went directly at him mm-hmm. in in Europe, um, and uh, and when Trump tried to, you know, be humorous and and make a joke, Macron just said, "Let's be serious." And he was uh, he he didn't he didn't want to have any part of that, which is, which is an interesting turn, um, and uh, and and also, of course, this week, as I mentioned in the intro. Um, you had the spectacle this week that this is the thing that Trump most dreads, I think, is that it's being laughed at. In fact, if you look at his career, you find that throughout his life, Trump has always had an obsession with the U.S. as being laughed at around the world. They don't respect us. They don't honor us. And, you know, when I'm president, they will. And he even threatened to commit war crimes to make people respect us. And, um, and, so this week he was mocked by, which uh, was caught on that video, and um, uh, and he uh, he stormed off. He left the mm-hmm. he left mm-hmm. the summit early. So that's that's one little piece of foreign policy news. But there's another one, which is that uh, it seems that the bromance is cooling between Trump and Kim Jong Un. Um, the great <laughs> the love real affair. man on the white horse. <laughs> yes, yes. You guys have missed it. The, the Kim is taking a page from the Putin playbook and appearing on a white horse. He wasn't shirtless like mm. Putin. I think that was probably a photoshopped image. But anyway, I um, don't think his shirtless look would be even as good. No, as no, no. But I'm. What I guess what I was saying is, if Putin can photoshop it, why wouldn't Kim? Right? He could just put another torso. In there, but anyway, <laughs> who would believe it? <laughs> um, the dear leader? Anyway, um, so so Trump said that he um, that he might need to use military force against North Korea, and he revived his rocket man insult uh, because, of course, the North Koreans have been shooting off test test firing missiles uh, despite their promises not to. Um, and in response, I will quote this directly because you can't really paraphrase it. This is what a North Korean spokesman said. If any language and expressions stoking the atmosphere of confrontation are used once again on purpose at a crucial moment as now, that must really be diagnosed as the relapse of the dotage of a dotard. So there, there we are. Um, <laughs> you couldn't paraphrase that? <laughs> um, <laughs> it was my fault. I, I you know, the problem is me. Uh, <clears throat> all right. It sounds like Google Translate. I know. It really does. All right. Well, um, we're laughing, but is anybody secretly crying? I mean, the, the, the state we – don't, we don't pay a lot of attention to the state of our foreign policy, um, but uh, – except, well, we have when, uh, when things go really, really badly, as they did in Syria, for example. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's it, – the dotage is not too strong a word to use, it sometimes seems, with this president. And uh, combine that with the emotional maturity of a five-year-old and um, all the same reasons that we worried about Trump becoming president of the United States and wielding all of that power um, still apply, even though there has not been Armageddon yet. But do um, do people worry about the and, – and not just the, the fear of Armageddon, which is, of course, the worst possible thing, but, but – just the complete erosion. I mean, Macron said this week that NATO is brain dead, meaning that without American leadership, it has lost its way. And um, of course, Trump can only see, you know, that expression, a cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Trump can only see um, that, you know, who's paying what regarding NATO. That's the only metric that he understands and is interested in. And um so is this uh, – some people say, well, that's okay. NATO's obsolete anyway. He's right. Um, and, uh, you know, Damon, why don't you defend that position? Oh, well, Pretty close well, to where you are, like isn't fun. it? Well, no, I mean, I think I – think Not about Trump, I, but 
No, yeah. but I, I think it is pretty clear that that NATO has has had troubles for quite a long time. And it's also true that relations between Europe and the United States have been very much up and down for a generation now. I mean, we you had very significant tensions between the Europeans and the Bush administration in the run-up to and aftermath of the Iraq War. Uh, they were, the Europeans were very eager for Bush to depart the stage, which is one reason why they lavished Obama with so much praise early on, including giving him the absurd, uh, you know, uh, Nobel Peace Prize, uh, prospectively, I That suppose. was on Inauguration Day, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it was pretty close. Um, and now things obviously are, are far worse than they were even under Bush, but this is a long-term, uh, process of, of very much growing pains for the alliance post-Cold War. The, the alliance is, on the one hand, stumbling around and not really knowing what its role should be at the same time that it continues to expand eastward. Uh, just within the last week, uh, another step toward uh, admitting North Macedonia to the alliance for reasons that I can't really hear anyone articulate uh, a good reason for this. It's sort of going on inertia. So as usual with Trump, and this goes back to what Josh was saying earlier also about the kind of the domestic side of things with the kind of Trumpian character of the Republican Party going forward, that there are always kind of they're the the uh, very complicated and uh, destabilizing policy positions of Trump and the administration. And then overlaid over that, you have Trump's style, which is actually the thing that is the most destabilizing thing of all. That if you had a president who came in and actually said, we have to talk through what NATO is, what people are contributing to it, what its vision of the future is, what role the different countries should have within it, that could be a very productive debate. But Trump instead comes in ostensibly holding that kind of skeptical position and argues the point with insults and by treating the alliance as if it's some kind of protection racket. And that it's that latter style, which domestically we see through his tweets all the time, that just poisons any conversation and makes it impossible to make any productive headway toward fixing our problems. So it sort of leads you to the conclusion that uh, if we're lucky enough to get out with only four years of Trump, we'll sort of be looking around at the rubble afterwards and being like, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, you sort of don't know what really positive could have come out of this experience of having him be the guy who's supposed to be uh, putting issues on the agenda. And some of the chaos you saw at the NATO uh, event this week, I think, is a product of that uh, sort of chaotic way of handling the situation. Did you, did yeah, you... we're, 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 I think we're learning that, especially in these last few months, that the president's rhetoric and his tweets are actually now the policy. I think the first two years of the Trump administration, you could make a – and I made this very case and, and I think I've had to walk it back because, you know, there was a policy that – you know, Tillerson, then Pompeo and Mattis and the so-called adults in the room were, were conducting at odds with the president's very own rhetoric, especially on foreign policy. And that's been increasingly not sustainable, especially as some of those veterans have departed uh, in the last year. And especially as as we're seeing what happened with Ukraine, where, where the president was, was conducting essentially a, fa a shadow foreign policy uh, and, and it was done outside of the traditional diplomatic and foreign policy channels. And that that is something new. That, that's something different. And I think the, 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 what, what Macron was talking about when he said NATO was brain dead reflects the fact, the reality that Trump's rhetoric matters, his tone matters, and that speaks more volumes, as Damon was saying, about foreign policy than what certain administration officials may be saying in public. Uh, I, I don't think this sort of bipolar foreign policy is sustainable anymore. And we're seeing, you know, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Turkey, whether it's in, you know, Europe with our with our allies in NATO, we're seeing this this disconnect. And, it, and it's collapsing before our very eyes. When you say this bipolar, what, what do you mean by the bipolar policy? 
the fact that you have Pompeo, for example, um, talking about Iran and the need to f- support the, the 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 protesters to try to you know c- conduct a policy that de- perhaps even destabilizes the regime, and then the president kind of willy nilly saying that's not the policy at his press conference this week. Uh, you you the, at one point in time you could say Pompeo was actually reflecting administration policy, uh, and Trump's rhetoric didn't mean anything or was a mistake. That's not sustainable anymore, and the president, frankly, has more control. His, his words mean. A a lot more. He's mastered the bureaucracy in a way that he didn't uh, in, in the first two, two and a half years in office. Mm-hmm. The question <clears throat> the question that interests me is whether this is temporary or permanent. Uh, and I wish it were as simple and straightforward as the temperament and lack of training and lack of understanding of a single president of the United States. It appears that, that is not Emmanuel Macron's understanding, you know, he has said to a number of advisors, a number of people in Europe, that he believes that the United States has structurally changed in a way that the defeat of President Trump will not fundamentally alter, Uh, that Europe can no longer rely on the United States to maintain the kind of firm guarantees of security that provided for decades uh, after the end of World War II, and that Europe has no choice but to make its own arrangements. Now, in Macron's case, that also amounts to an outreach to Russia, which is, of course, the return to a very traditional French foreign policy that mm-hmm. goes back goes back a century and more. But uh, uh, this is interesting in turn because it challenges the fundamental narrative of the leading candidate for the presidential nomination, Democratic presidential nomination, Joe Biden, who is really staked a lot intellectually and politically on the proposition that Trump represents a reversible detour Mm -hmm. for America, not just in domestic policy, but perhaps especially in foreign policy, and that he, Joe Biden, as a practitioner of traditional post-war American foreign policy, can restore normality. We shall see. If Macron is right, then Biden is wrong, and vice versa. Well, Damon, can I can I get into this first, and then and then we'll um, sure. have, hear from you again. Um, the um, so you mentioned um, you mentioned Russia and, and France. Look, uh, when people say, "Well, you know, NATO is obsolete because it was formed to um, prevent the Soviet Union from rolling its tanks into Germany," and uh, the rest of free Europe, and that's what uh, that's changed. Therefore, it, there's no function for it anymore. I think that's a very pinched and narrow view because there are still threats to liberty, mm-hmm. and there are um, the, the 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 threats have changed. There aren't going to be tanks rolling into Germany, but but there are. Um, there is Putin has had tremendous success in exporting his kind of corruption, um, his kind of kleptocracy. Um, and uh, and China is a, an enormous threat to liberty. We see it when American companies, um, uh, you know, obey Chinese dictates about what they can show and do, and and uh, cooperate in spying and uh, repressing human beings. And so the challenges are are different, but they still require clear leadership for liberty that I would love to see the United States providing. And um, there doesn't seem to be um, a recognition that the United States has a special role to play in that. Damon? Yeah, my only point was to um, flag for listeners um, a uh, a European intellectual named uh, Ivan Krastev, uh, who is one of the smartest observers of the European scene out there, had a very good piece in the New York Times this week in which he talked about the NATO gathering in these terms and made very clear that from the European point of view, the the Biden point of view, the, the Biden stance that we can just sort of reverse Trump and go back to post-war normality uh, is is not really going to fly anymore. I, 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 and I think he's right that there is real skepticism there that how do the Europeans know that if, even if Biden comes in and tries to reset everything that four years later he won't lose to another Trumpian Republican who'll reverse things again. 
the for their for their point of view, this really is kind of fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. They felt burned by George W. Bush's unilateralism as they saw it in Iraq, and Trump is like that times ten. And they're, I don't think they're going to be too quick to just say, oh, everything's back to normal now. Because as far as they're concerned, it hasn't been so-called normal since the 1990s. And that's quite a long time ago now. The, the only point I would add is I, I think a lot of our allies have this sort of grand view of the politics of foreign policy and assume that voters are casting ballots based on a candidate's national security views or foreign policy worldview. And, uh, you know, uh, you saw the disconnect with Trump, where I, I think you've seen Republicans in the past generation have entire their whole worldview being at odds with what Trump stood for. But the, the actual policies themselves didn't change when you look at the polling, even though the president uh, changed and, and had a different different division. Um, you know, I think the only time foreign policy matters in politics, and I think we're learning that with sort of the vagaries of the Ukraine, uh, litigating the, the Ukraine phone call, is when you have casualties in war. Um, other than that, I don't think voters really offer a mandate uh, either way. I, I think it, it's really almost the luck of the draw. So, you know, if Hillary Clinton got a you know, 70,000 more votes across those three Midwestern uh, blue wall states, we, we may not be talking uh, about the same issues now. So, you know, I do think that that uh, Biden would have a, a much more traditional view if elected. And I don't think that that uh, traditional uh, view of America as a protector uh, for Europe and and, and being uh, a multilateral operator in the, in the, in the, in the NATO alliance. Uh, I, I actually think that, yes, there, there's been a lot of eggs that have been cracked in the last four years, but I think Biden would would revert to a very traditional uh, view that, that has not been uh, abnormal in our foreign policy. Yeah, but the, the analytical point that Damon put on the table still stands. That is, how much confidence will they have? It's sort of like investing after there's been a market crash, there's an extended period during which, even if you think prospects are reasonably good, the memory of the disaster is shaping your investment decisions. Just one more point on the, uh, in the same vein to underscore uh, Mona's argument, and that is we are witnessing the formation of what may turn out to be an historic entente between Russia and China. You know, symbolized by this massive pipeline that they just put into operation uh, this week. Uh, there, are all, there are all sorts of signs that two large countries that have been at loggerheads, mostly, even in the period, perhaps especially in the period where they espoused, roughly speaking, the same ideology, are now finding important areas of common interest that they hadn't seen previously. And you know, uh, Russian natural gas supplies and Chinese need for energy, that's a match made in heaven. And there are other signs of cooperation that could be real trouble for the United States, NATO, and the entire democratic world in the decades to come. And it's happening before our eyes. Liberty is in retreat. Um, it is, uh, it, you know, in Turkey, um, in the countries of Eastern Europe that were formerly in the Soviet Union, like Hungary and Poland. Um, we are living in a moment where um, the ideas of, of liberty are, um, are, are just no longer upheld. And I would cite for you the Republican Party, uh, where, you know, the other night on Fox News, you had Tucker Carlson um, saying that as between Russia and Ukraine, of course, we should be on Russia's side. Um, that's the new Republican Party, uh, or at least it's a part of it. It, it's shocking, though. Talking to some Trumpian foreign policy uh, operatives, uh, the, the the consensus seems to be that China is, is the bigger threat, and that, and even some voices, and I'm not sure if Carlson is one of them, but believes that we should bring on Russia to really counter the the the, the bigger threat that is the Chinese uh, Empire. I, I don't know if if that's the right <laughs> policy, and I still think you can uh, maintain your your values and your interests vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia while also trying to counter China. But you know, the the pivot that Republicans politically are making because it, it unifies the part that that's the new country, the new rival that unifies the Republican coalition. China, that they're they're the real threat, can and I, that's can that's. I just make a point about that because whenever I talk to Trumpian people and, you know, they're people of goodwill and they seem to be genuinely to believe this, they will say, well, you know, I do agree with Trump about it was necessary to take on China. And that was a good thing that he did. 
and I say, what in particular do you think has been successful? Um, what was it the tariffs? Uh, because the mm -hmm. tariffs have represented a loss of market share for our farmers, which is right now being supplied by subsidies, but which rep long term, you don't get those markets back. Other people get them, like Brazil or Argentina, who we've just put new tariffs on this week. Or, and, um, you know, was There's it another failed romance, by the way, between Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro, and Trump. yes, yes, another <laughs> Trump wannabe. Um, that's right. Um, but uh, but the fact is that that Trump's policies have been good for China's strength. I mean, the, he withdrew his one of his first acts was to withdraw from TPP, which represented an American-led trade alliance that would have been on American uh, written rules. Um, not entirely American written, but a huge American contribution um, and with our Asian trading partners and would have put pressure on China. And instead... That, of course, was exactly the argument that Barack Obama and, you know, and his USTR were mm -hmm. making for two years before the end of the Obama administration to a chorus of derision That's that right. was bipartisan. It was. Hillary Clinton also said that, having said that TPP was you know, the gold standard for a trade treaty, she then said she Turned was against it. Turned out to be iron pyrites as far yeah. as she was concerned. <laughs> so, right. Anyway. anyway. Um, but, but so Trump pulls out of that. He loses, uh, he, he loses leverage um, against China. He imposes these tariffs, which have uh, been paid by U.S. taxpayers. How, in fact, what has he achieved with China? Does anybody have any idea? Uh, to the one thing he's achieved is to state a problem that hardly anybody in either political party disagrees with. In other words, he, he sort of broke the silence or the ambivalence. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he crystallized it in the national security strategy, or at least the people around him did. And it has become the lingua franca of the new foreign policy consensus in both political parties. Mm -hmm. So I will very reluctantly give him credit for doing that. But having stated the problem, he has no idea of what to do about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he has basically, um, so we'll give him credit for that. I'll, I'll go along with that. Um, but he has two arrows in his quiver, tariffs and sanctions. And that's pretty much it. Um, mm -hmm. And he's done that. And it hasn't it hasn't changed China's position. And China, I think we discussed this on one of our other podcasts, they have the luxury. They're an authoritarian country. They don't have elections coming up. They don't feel the pressure to make a deal. He feels pressure to make a deal. You can always tell whenever Trump says, oh, they're really eager for a deal. Whenever he's talking to about anybody, he's projecting. He's the one who wants the deal, not the other party. Yeah, for, for such a vaunted deal maker, there, there has, I mean, I think he just said that uh, there may not be a deal with China That's until right. after the 2020 elections. So yeah. there, there is this sort of mirage, you know, that he's a deal maker, but no deals end up getting made. And that goes to, to Bill's point that, you know, he, he identifies the problem. And I think, look, there's a, there's a pretty potent coalition of people who are underserved, people who are anti-free trade, people who didn't like the fact that the U.S. Were, was getting into needless wars or were, were taking too much of an interventionist posture overseas, people who thought we should be tougher on China and really fight them. And he so politically, he actually is building this coalition, which you can see uh, is having a positive effect um, in many ways. But, you know, when is the bill going to come due? When when do people is do we live in such a fact free universe that if there is no deal with China, if the military our national security posture in the Middle East worsens, if, you know, the, the tariffs are really taking a pinch on farmers in the Midwest, uh, does that come to does the, does, the, does the roosters come – is there a backlash in November of 2020? And well, I think the answer, there may be. The answer to that question is yes, because every sensible economist uh, believes that a failure to reach a China deal, which would mean the imposition and maintenance of an additional round of tariffs, which are scheduled for December 15th, which is not that very far away, uh, would would cut a lot off a growth rate which is already – declining. And people will notice that in 2020. At that point, it ceases to be a foreign policy issue. And as far as the electorate is concerned, becomes a domestic policy issue. That's a big deal. Hmm. So he needs some sort of interim agreement with China. And he might he might make one. And well, even if it's a bad deal, he'll say it's the greatest deal in history and his people, and people will buy will it. People will believe him. Yeah. Right. Because 
because what they, you know, the, the farmers can see the harm of the current course. Consumers can see the benefit of returning to something closer to business as usual. And the businesses that are screaming bloody murder because of intellectual property concerns, because of technology theft, because of Chinese laws that require them to enter into a minority status with yeah. some partnership with mm -hmm. Chinese firms. Okay, all of those deep structural questions, which Mr. Lighthouse or the US, Trump's USTR, to his credit, has been trying to address, those are the things that are going to be set aside right. in the name of a short-term deal that feels good but solves nothing. That's exactly right. I mean, those are the really important issues. And I, I'm sure you're right that they would be the first things to of be course, jettisoned. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yep, yep. But of course, you know, Lighthizer being an honest man, I think will not allow that to happen easily. Well, that's interesting. There's an honest man who works for Trump. I think <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Lighthizer. I don't okay. agree. I don't agree with most of what he's yeah, doing, a lot of what he's doing. But uh, you know, he has he has behaved as a competent professional. Interesting, right? He used to be a steel guy, right? He represented oh, yeah, the steel makers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he's not doing anything he doesn't believe in. Yeah, yeah. Still. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Well, we will see. All right. Let's talk a little bit about um, the other big news event of this week, which is um, the impeachment. Um, so the Republican arguments, um, some of which were advanced uh, at yesterday's hearing by Professor Jonathan Turley of George Washington, um, have uh, you know, they've become creative and um, Protean, let us say. The goalposts have been moved so often that it's hard to keep track. So we remember that when the whistleblower account first surfaced and the, Rep the Republican line was, well, we can't take this secondhand account seriously. And then they moved on to, well, there was no quid pro quo. And then they said, well, the aid was eventually delivered. So no harm, no foul. And this week, Turley voiced some of the latest arguments, including there isn't enough evidence that Trump demanded political dirt in exchange for official acts. Um, so there are a couple things to say about this before we get open up to discussion. First is that this is the exact opposite position that Turley took when Bill Clinton was facing impeachment. He argued the opposite then, so bad on him. But... Um, but the thing, this argument that there isn't enough evidence just puzzles me. I mean, the evidence, we had the evidence. We had the smoking gun at the very beginning when the president released the readout of that call. Well, I think from a political point of view, I think we almost missed the big picture because people say that the impeachment hasn't moved a whole lot of voters. But really, we knew the end of the story. We, we, we watched the end of the movie before we saw the facts building up to the end of the movie. So if you compare the polling on impeachment before the phone call transcript between Trump and Zelensky was released, it jumps significantly, probably more than any other event in the Trump administration. But opinion on impeachment shifted uh, more dramatically from September and October to, to the current public opinion. About 50% now support impeachment and removal if you look at the average of, of the national polls. Um, that's not that's not insignificant. It's actually higher than any uh, support for impeachment except for, the, I believe, like the final weeks of the, the Nixon impeachment in 1974. So I think we kind of have lost the – because this was so unique that Trump basically uh, put out the smoking gun <laughs> before we had the, the, the details that kind of backfilled in the whole story, I think we were kind of, you know, not realizing that there was quite a bit of movement – Certainly Democrats rallied around impeachment, but also the independent number. Uh, people have cited an Emerson poll before the hearings. That's a little bit bit, bit shady. Uh, the average of, of the polls among independents show a, a slight plurality in favor of impeachment and removal among independents. So that's not insignificant. Um, so, I, you know, I think what we're, we're realizing is that we're in a very – partisan time or in a very tribal time. Uh, I think the big picture is that having 50% uh, of the country that supports the removal of a president is not something to sneeze at. It's, it's a pretty significant number. But I also think you have to have the, the necessary pragmatism to understand in the Senate that to get 20 Republican votes uh, with only 50% support, that, that, that that's not going to happen. Um, and I think Republican, uh, rather Democrats, and, and Pelosi showed her hand today. They want to have a fast vote probably in the House at the end of December before the holidays. And it uh, looks like the Senate's going to have 
have a pretty pretty concise trial for a few weeks. Uh, the big question, I think, is whether Mitt Romney uh, votes uh, to remove the president from office. I think that's that's an open question. It's hard to see many other Republicans in the Senate following suit. But I think the political impact still is negative for Trump. I, I don't think this is a cost-free exercise. And I think especially those Senate, Repu- or Senate Republicans up for grabs in 2020, Susan Collins, Martha McSally, Tom Tillis. Um, I think they're going to Gardner. Cory Gardner most, most yeah, absolutely. Um, the the price of being loyal to Trump at all costs is a significant one, and they may not be back to to tell the story after twenty twenty. Yeah. What about the the couple of Democrats that are always mentioned as possibly voting um, uh, against their party? So you have um, uh, the senator from Arizona, um, um, uh, whose name escapes me. Cinema, right? yeah, Cinema, right? Kirsten Cinema, um, and uh, and Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin yeah. What about them? Manchin is. I, I would expect him to vote. Uh, with the president. I, I just think West Virginia, unless he's planning to retire or not run for office, uh, the, the politics for him in his home state would be too, too devastating uh, if he did vote to remove the president from office. Cinema is a fascinating uh, figure. Yeah, I mean, she's, a, she's I was in Arizona. Else, so she's I mean, yeah, else, she really yeah. is. And we could have a whole show. I mean, yeah. I, I was, she was a socialist activist uh, not that long ago. Um, and she sort of evolved into this sort of moderate, uh, independent uh, senator to reflect the politics of Arizona. Now, Arizona is actually moving in a very, I mean, it, that was once one of the most Republican states in the country. It's now a, a bona fide battleground, but it's a moderate state. And, uh, you know, the, I think she really is sort of a swing vote because, um, you know, if she reads the independent numbers as, as I do. I mean, it may make sense for her to, to, to support removal, but she's actually kind of leaned against her leadership, party's leadership. And, uh, you know, it's definitely possible to see her going the other way as well. But um, the, the big picture is it, it's going to be a partisan vote in both the House and the Senate. And the only question is, how does this affect the political outcome for 2020? Yeah. I actually read. I'm, I'm sorry, Damon. You no, first. that's okay. Well, I, I mean, I had a, a brief point that as we're talking, I have open uh, 538's uh, aggregate polling that they do on Trump's approval. And it has very nice lines with an orange line of the disapproval number on the top because it's always higher than the approval number, which is on the bottom in green. And you can see it all the way from the beginning of Trump's presidency. And uh, <laughs> as of today, he's at 41.6 approval. And if you look back over the last two months since the whole impeachment thing began, I guess it's about two and a half months now, it is not possible to see any change at all in his approval rating since all of this began in mid to late September. Uh, you can go back in time. You can kind of see a little dip around the time of the uh, government shutdown uh, last winter. And then all the way back early in the Trump presidency, he reached a low point at the Charlottesville uh, event where he seemed to see uh, good people on both sides. He reached his all-time low then. But back through the first year Trump was president, he was regularly in the high 30s, 37, 38, 39 percent approval. He's at 41.6 today. There is absolutely no change in his total support in the country as a result of these events. And I say that as someone who supported impeachment and in the early days of this podcast a couple months ago uh, was on the opposite side from Bill Galston, who made a very compelling case that actually what we should get is a congressional censure of the president instead. And I wrote a column a week or so ago in which I came around to his view. So I really do think that that would be the best outcome here because he is not going to be removed. And I really question what good is going to come out of this continuing much longer. So I'm glad it will be over fairly soon. Bill, did you, did you I think to... I think Damon has stated most of the case that I was going to make, and okay. I see no reason to use up more scarce airtime. <laughs> the only the only thing I would add is forty one point six percent is is not a good number, no. and and I, I think he need Trump needs to be closer to 45 percent to have a have a good chance at reelection. And do you think that, but for the impeachment process, he might have been at forty four? There's no evidence of that. Probably not, but yeah. but but I do think it just further prevents him from ever being able to kind of build. If you look at the, the hard disapproves, uh, you, you're nearing a majority of the country. And, and that's what impeachment does. It hardens since I, the since opposition. Since I have it before me here, Trump was last at 44% on February 18th, 2017. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> look, I, I, these points are indisputable. Um, I would just say that that it does um, create new precedents, bad ones, about um, congressional power and about presidential behavior. <clears throat> um, the complete defiance of congressional subpoenas, saying I just absolutely will not acknowledge your authority, acknowledge your uh, legal right to question anybody that works for me now or ever worked for me, um, is something that should have been tested um, in the courts. And uh, it looks like it won't be. Uh, so he's going to get away with that. That will be the new norm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the idea that the president can... Uh, can uh, strong arm countries and demand dirt uh, that that too I think you know may not be it may not be the norm but um, it certainly uh, certainly opens the door to um, vicious and and self-interested conduct being no longer considered uh, well, beyond if, the pale if I may put in a word for the much criticized professor Turley okay uh, I think I think the strong point of his testimony was a criticism of the Congress, in some cases for not issuing subpoenas, and in other cases for not trying to get the courts to enforce them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually don't think that if there is a final definitive Supreme Court judgment saying that A, B, and C must testify that you know, executive privilege does not apply to this situation, uh, I don't think that even this president would defy the Supreme Court. And so I do think that there is some merit to the argument that the rush to get this done mm -hmm. is coming at some cost to the integrity of the overall process and maybe contributing to the negative precedence, Mona, uh, that you quite rightly enumerated. So remind me of what the rationale is for rushing. Political. I mean, it, no, it's, it's a political. Cool. And look, I, I will say, as someone who sort of made the case politically for impeachment, I, I will say that all, almost every poll that's been conducted, when it, you ask voters what their priorities are, impeachment is at the bottom of the list, Correct. even for Democrats. So and what that's Pelosi what you hear? That's what you hear from the field in Iowa and New Hampshire. Right. So that, that, that that's what I mean. And, and Pelosi didn't want to get into impeachment, both for that reason and because it wasn't polling well. Now it's polling better, but people still aren't paying attention to what's going on in Washington. And the notion that you could spend all of 2020 or a lot of 2020 talking about a very complicated hearing when you have voters who want to hear about health care and mm -hmm. the economy, that was the risk. And I think they, I think Schiff and Pelosi understood the politics. M numbers aren't moving any further. Let's let's we played our hand. We did what we could. Let's fold. Let's have the vote and then let's move on. All right. I do think it's worth just mentioning for, for the record so that we don't forget. We just noticed uh, that one of the things that the Intelligence Committee report revealed was that Devin Nunes, the ranking member, um, was uh, had phone calls with Lev Parnas, Rudy Giuliani, Jay Sekulow, Victoria Tunsing, and others in April of 2019. So he is actually an actor in this drama and not truly uh, an investigator really or at what least he should what, have he should have disclosed that what a surprise <laughs> and here i thought all the time i thought he was an honorable, honorable legislator, yeah, legislator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. legislator. Know. <laughs> well you know you get shot shot <laughs> nothing surprises me anymore nothing surprises me anymore with republicans behavior in the house but you know it's funny nunes was once a boehner ally he was an establishment republican who fought the freedom caucus who fought the tea That's party true. And so it goes to show you that these alliances that we once sort of put in stone have in many ways been scrambled, at least Stefanica we talked about well, earlier. And, and you don't you know where these people about, stand. And you were mentioning Kirsten Cinema, and I thought of the piece uh, that uh, Quinn Hillier wrote in the Washington Examiner about uh, John Kennedy of Louisiana. Same thing. I mean, he started out as this moderate. I think he even worked for a Democratic governor. And uh, He voted for John Kerry. He endorsed he John, for Kerry, John Kerry. And he was a Democrat. Right. So, yeah. so and, and, and by the way, according to Quinn, he is, even, even the accent is put on. He doesn't have that deep Southern drawl that he now affects it was a complete he would they were like classmates at oxford or something it is a career decision yes absolutely <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I, I have to add that if you go back and listen to george w bush talking when he was actually governor of texas yeah. he didn't sound nearly as southern as he did when he became president oh that's interesting yeah <sighs> interesting all right well we've come to the show i 
Josh, I didn't tell you about this, so if you don't have anything, it's okay. But we come to the part where we talk about uh, praise or uh, praise for somebody that we don't usually agree with or criticism of somebody that we usually do agree with. And um, I think this is the last show where we're going to do this. After this, we're going to broaden it out and just mention things we feel like mentioning at the very end. But um, but I'll go first. Um, I will um, mention that Marco Rubio, who I supported in the primaries in 2016 and was um, very well disposed to, um, uh, has now, you know, in his evolution, he's gone to uh, this, um, uh, what does he call it? Um, common good capitalism. He gave speech at Catholic University and, and you know, he's clearly put a lot of thought into this and so on. But uh, I, I don't think that this is profitable. I don't think it's the right policy uh, avenue at all, um, because what it says is, it, he, he, here's, here's, there are many problems with it, including that government has never been good about, you know, identifying problems and solving them. That's part of the conservative insight um, <clears throat> about the world. But, uh, but the other thing is that he does something that I think is endemic uh, on the right now, especially among the populist right, which is he points to cultural problems and he tries to pin them on economics. He says, you know, that we, we have family breakdown, we have drug abuse, we have suicide. All of that is true. But to say that it's because people don't have jobs is not, let's say, to put it mildly, not proven uh, that we have record low unemployment. Uh, millions of jobs are going unfilled. There's something else going on that is the cause of those cultural and social problems. And the idea that you can fix it with the right tweak to the Small Business Administration is, I think, folly. Um, did you have something, Josh? Well, I'll, I'll give Jonathan Turley another uh, shout out, I guess, um, <laughs> because, you know, I, I actually thought that as effective as Schiff was in, in, in holding the Intelligence Committee hearings, and, and those were fact-based hearings, I thought the, that yes, the, this week's uh, Judiciary Committee hearings were a disaster for for Democrats, and, and they looked every bit as partisan as Republicans were accusing uh, them of being. And I even thought Matt Gates, who I've ne I don't think I've ever said a positive thing about, uh, I actually thought he made a relevant point that you have, you know, the the, the strength that Turley brought to the table was, was sort of political. He he said I I didn't vote for Trump. But I'm still making my case. And I think, you know, when you always look for the people like a, that are voting or speaking against self-interest and who knows what his interests are. But <laughs> at least for your average voter who's not following all the details, he came across as someone who was sort of a, uh, an umpire who was just saying, look, I don't think the standard has been reached. I think this has been done too fast. Uh, I thought the three Democratic witnesses, all uh, esteemed uh, law, law school professors, uh, they came across as partisan. And, and uh, you know, one in particular, you know, couldn't stop but sneering at the president in so many of her remarks. And, you know, whatever you think of the substance of, of her comments, that the, your average swing voter who's trying to make heads or tails of this has got to think of this as a pretty partisan exercise after watching, if they were watching any, any, any bit of the testimony. Um, so I I actually thought, you know, that Turley came across very well. I actually thought Republicans, on the, as far as the, not on the substance, but on the politics, finally, it was the first witness that they had throughout this whole process that actually turned out well for them. Um, so I, I do look, I, I, I think that Schiff was very effective in how he handled the Intel Committee hearings. I don't think he could have done much better, uh, but I thought Nadler's handling of uh, and who he called uh, uh, to, to represent the, 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 the witnesses on, on his side, uh, I, I did not think was effective and maybe even backfired a little bit. Hmm. Uh, Damon? Uh, yeah, mine is a little different. Uh, it's an exchange that actually has taken place. One, uh, the, the first part of it was by uh, Michael Brendan Doherty, a very talented conservative writer at National Review, uh, wrote a piece titled Trump is Incidental to the Culture War, in which he tried to make the case that a lot of what the kind of the conservative side of the culture war is, is animated about is motivated not, uh, it's motivated by fear of, of their fellow Americans and what uh, liberals and progressives do with government power when they have it. Uh, and that that is what is motivating them. It's a kind of uh, plea to liberals to listen to the fears that uh, that uh, these 
more conservative voters feel about uh, the dangers confronting them by uh, a liberal-led uh, government power about things like uh, religious freedom and so forth. And this was a good piece. Uh, but then uh, a very interesting a, a, a political scientist named Jeffrey Sachs on Twitter wrote a very long tweet storm response to this that is the rarest of things, which is a very clearly liberal response that actually took the piece seriously, hit back hard, but actually seemed to move the ball down the field a little bit and and actually explained a thoughtful liberal rejoinder to this position about the development of the religious right and the Republican Party over the last generation and why liberals are not inclined to give uh, the right side of the culture war much slack at this point. So I, I recommend it to readers to read both sides, read Doherty's initial essay, and then seek out Sachs's tweet storm that began uh, this morning, which is December 5th at uh, 9.55 a.m. That's when the first tweet went out. And if you... Sachs. It's it's Jeffrey A. Sachs, S-A-C-H-S. -S. And so his Twitter handle is at Jeffrey A. Sachs. Okay, great. Bill. Well, this is going to be a shout out for, uh, you know, full disclosure, someone that I regard as, as a friend. Uh, his name is Henry Olson, and he... He's at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, an outfit uh, with which I rarely agree. Uh, and I think on the question of whether President Trump should be reelected, Henry and I are probably on different sides of that one. Uh, I think he'd prefer Trumpism without Trump. But if he has to take Trump in order to get Trumpism, that's a package he's willing to accept, at least for now. But he is, he is doing solid honest political analysis, particularly of survey research, that Democrats would be very well advised to take seriously uh, because I think it will lead them in a, in a saner direction uh, than if they simply follow the survey trail uh, that, uh, that reinforces their own prejudices about which way the party should turn between now and November of 2020. Okay. Well, thank you one and all. And I uh, would just ask our wonderful listeners to kindly rate and review us on iTunes. Lots of people don't know about us yet. And we'd appreciate your comments and feedback and, uh, and retweets. And uh, thanks, Josh, for coming in. And uh, thank you one and all. See you next time.